Kazuo Ishiguro won the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature. Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Kazuo Ishiguro won the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature. This interview was conducted on April 1st, 2015 at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera during the book tour for his most recent novel, the Buried Giant. My guest is Kazuo Ishiguro, whose latest novel is The Buried Giant. It's his eighth book. Other books are Remains of the Day, When We Were Orphans, uh, most recently Nocturnes, short stories, and Never Let Me Go. Kazuo Ishiguro's latest book takes place in Saxon England, kind of, in post-Authorian times, and it's a fantasy and it's an allegory. And the last time I spoke with you was for when we were orphans back in 2000. So I also want to talk about Never Let Me Go as well. But let's start with Buried Giant. Uh, I understand that you had originally written about 80 pages of the book and your wife said, "Uh uh-uh, start from scratch. What's the story behind that? It's not as big a deal as it sounds, you know, because this happens to me from time to time. And it happened with Never Let Me Go as well. I've often started books there's been an obstacle or something, and I put it to one side for a few years. And when I've gone back to it, it's kind of worked out all right. In fact, would never let me go. I had three different goes at it. And it's only on the third time round that it, it came right. Uh, Very Giant, I did it in two attempts. The first try was put to a kind of a premature end by my wife, who acts as a quality control person in, in the household. And uh, she said, you know, you have to start again. I did ask her what she would like me to change or what she would like me to tweak or develop and what I'd written. She said, you don't understand. I'm saying you have to start absolutely from the beginning <laughs> again. So I, I put it to one side and uh, I did a few other things. You know, I, I wrote a book of short stories, Nocturnes, and um, I had two movies to, to think about. I wrote some song lyrics for Stacey Kent, my jazz singer friend. And then I came back to the Berry Giant. I didn't know it was called that then, but that's what I did. Now, this happens to me often, and it happens for a variety of reasons, but it's, it's something to do with the way I write, I think. I write from the idea outwards. I don't kind of start with the words. I, I work out the ideas, the relationships. You know, an idea that might be possible to express in about three or four lines, and then I, I try and build on that. In a way... The way I go about things, the order in which I go about things is prone to the thing getting stalled. You know, because I have this idea, but there's usually something very big missing, like the setting or something like this. The actual reason my wife told me on that occasion, you know, I should start again was to do with the language in which the characters spoke to each other. But there's often some kind of major obstacle like that that stops me relatively late in the writing process. For the Barry Giant, what was that original, you know, two or three line idea that you had? And also, did it stay for take two? That stayed 
more or less intact. Before I had a kind of a, a story idea, if you like, the thing I had wanted to do for years was to move from writing novels that were essentially about one individual trying to decide how much he or she wanted to remember about the past life. Like The Remains of the Day is a typical example of that, or, or Never Let Me Go. They're both first-person narrations. The narrator is remembering. You get the story filtered through their memories. They play hide-and-seek with their memories. They don't know if they want to remember some things. They embroider certain memories. They deceive themselves. You know, that stuff. I'd always done that, but I'd always wanted to take a kind of a step forward in my terms and write about how a nation hid from its memories. The struggle a nation had with the dilemma, when is it better to remember about a traumatic past, a traumatic history, maybe only one generation back, maybe more sometimes. And when is it better to just keep some troublesome things buried for the sake of social cohesion, for the sake of maybe avoiding another cycle of violence or even civil war from erupting. So I always wanted to compare, not just not just talk about societal memory, I wanted to compare emotionally and thematically the difference between how individuals at the personal level struggle with remembering and forgetting and the way nations did. So that was always my ambition. I was looking around for a kind of a story that would express this, and it took me a while, but I, I did come out with a bunch of little storylines in my little notebook different eras no you see this is the point you see i don't decide on the setting until much later and if you look at my any of my notebooks and i have these notebooks going back to the 1980s uh, they're full of little ideas for stories or in my deluded moments i think they're storylines for successful Hollywood movies, that, that doesn't never quite happen for me. I prefer them to be expressed quite succinctly. In this case, I thought in a particular society, everybody in it, you know, young and old, are suffering from some kind of selective amnesia that's fallen over the nation. And in this nation, there's a particular couple, an elderly couple, who are upset that they've lost their shared memories, and they think the loss of the shared memories will affect their love for each other. And for this reason, they want the memories back and they go on some kind of journey to try and find the lost memories. Along the way, you know, they have to decide, do they want this amnesiac mist that's fallen over the land to go away or do they want it to stay? That's basically the story. I could have set it in a kind of a sci-fi-ish setting. We can all think of interesting, clever ways in which the whole nation's minds can get controlled a little bit so that every time we try and think of a certain range of topics, we we have memory lapses. Well, not hard to think of. I might have set it in a real recent historical place. Kazuo Ishiguro, you did decide to set it in the 5th century after the Arthurian era. What brought you to that? Was it watching an episode of Game of Thrones? <laughs> I've yet to see a single episode of the Game of Thrones, but that's not because I don't want to. Game of Thrones came along you know, after I had started right. off on this book, and I thought it was best that I didn't watch any of the episodes of the TV show or read any of George R. R. Martin's writing because it might uh, influence me. I mean, I, I knew it, but it's quite you know powerful stuff, right. and, uh, and I, I, that's my usual policy. If something comes along while I'm on a project, then it's kind of close to it in any way. 
either thematically or on the surface, then I, I keep away from it. So I can't tell you much about George R. R. Martin. But I was coming more from the direction of things like the Odyssey. I really like things like the Odyssey and the Iliad. I like all samurai tales that I grew up on as a kid, where you know there's some kind of samurai swordsman and, and slightly supernatural creatures coexisting quite happily. Mm. I grew up on a lot of stories like that. You know, samurai comes to town and the town folk say to him, you know, we have a demon problem over at that bridge. We can't cross that bridge because there's a demon. Could you please sort it out? And he says, well, I'll give it a try. You know, that kind of thing. Very, very natural to me. And also Western movies that I grew up loving and I still do love. All of those things went into the mix, along with what you might call the more traditional Arthurian kind of things. But I have to tell you, you don't have to know much about the Arthurian stuff. You know, you don't have to know about the Round Table or the Holy Grove, because I don't. I don't know much about that. What I did research and got to know a little bit about was the possible historical figure on which Arthur might have been based. I did look at the very little that is known and established about what happened in Britain after the Romans withdrew their empire from Britain and the time the Anglo-Saxons coming over from European mainland more or less kind of settled, invaded, did some kind of a piece of ethnic cleansing or genocide to get rid of the indigenous Britons and established England. So there's a gap of almost a century that no one knows much about. And there is speculation that if there's any basis for a real King Arthur, it was some sort of resistance fighter on the part of the indigenous Britons fighting the the waves of Anglo-Saxons landing and trying to take hold of their land. When you're talking about the Japanese movies, samurai movies, immediately I could almost like see a Japanese version, a samurai version of this very thing where you've got this ronin wandering around and a Japanese dragon, and it almost makes as much sense to do it. Were you thinking of possibly setting it in Japan? It did kind of flicker through my mind, yeah. There's always a part of me that's always wanted to do a samurai story because it's kind of very natural to me to think in those terms. But I thought there were so many similarities, so much common ground between what you might set in ancient Britain of that time and in a kind of samurai setting. So, yeah, you've got an Anglo-Saxon warrior. He's a swordsman. He's wandering around some kind of wild landscape. Yeah, there are kind of supernatural kind of creatures. There's ogres and pixies, but they're there to express real fears and real hopes. They're an expression, a real expression of what the people in that kind of society might be feeling. They're the big things in their lives, you know. But there's a pre-scientific age. It's certainly pre-psychotherapy or anything like that. So you know, when they want to articulate something to themselves, they can't say the kind of things we would say. So they would say instead things like, the reason you're ill is because late at night, two months ago, a pixie came in and gave you that illness. Because that's an explanation that's available. So in my book, I thought I would, I would pay respect, sufficient respect to what we would call superstitions in that society and allow them to exist for real in my fictional world. Kazuo Ishiguro, in reading about how other people are trying to understand Buried Giant, the word allegory pops up. The problem with allegory or metaphor is that you have to kind of find the corollary. So when you're creating 
uh, book-like, very giant. Are you thinking, okay, I've got this allegory about genocide. Who is the dragon? Do you worry about things like that? Or are you working more from an unconscious point of view at that point? I'm not that comfortable with the word allegory. Maybe we use it differently, you and I. To me, allegory, I kind of tend to think much more in terms of A equals X. So in certain situations, like if you're writing in a country that has an oppressive regime or something, you may prefer to write in allegorical form because you know, bad things will happen if you, if you wrote it you know, in the open. Or in religious terms, you're trying to express kind of difficult ideas, so you call it an allegory. But it, for me, that has to have a clear correspondence. A has to equal B. Metaphor I like better because I think metaphor is much more movable. You point it at many things. I kind of think of a story like The Berry Giant as being metaphorical. You can apply it to, to situations that apply over and over throughout history and to situations that apply over and over in people's relationships. That dilemma, when is it better to remember? When is it better to keep things buried just so that you can keep functioning. I mean, that's something that haunts people at the personal and at the societal level. And so by having a, a setting that is obviously on the surface, not literally one that existed, a surface whose relevance I can't be insisting on at that literal kind of level, I would hope that the reader then instinctively thinks of it as, as something that can be applied to eternal and universal human situations. But I'm not trying to lock it down. I'm not trying to say this is actually about you know, what happened in Bosnia or what happened in Rwanda or anything like that. Although you could you know, see many parallels with what happened in those kinds of situations. Is this similar, the same process for Never Let Me Go? Same process in the sense that I had a similar kind of a problem. I had a story that I was committed to but I hadn't really figured out where I should put that story down. You know, no setting, no genre. So Buried Giant never let me go. There was a point in the writing of both of those books where I came to a bit of a halt and I had to stop and think, would it be better to put this story down in this world or that world or that world? And, and sometimes that accounted for a lot of kind of delay. They're big decisions, you know. And it sounds crazy, but I think that's what happens if you go about the writing process in the way I do. You end up location hunting a lot. Never Let Me Go, I wanted a story that was, once again, a kind of metaphor, if you like, about mortality and, and the human aging process. I didn't just want to write a story to say that we had to face mortality and go through the aging process. We all know that. The story is about once you're facing the shortness of life, you know, what's important? What are the things you urgently want to do? So it becomes a kind of a tale of friendship and love and the things you want to put right before it's too late. The declaration of love has to come before it's too late. All these things, they come into it. But I wanted a story about young people, basically, who went through the process usually that elderly people go through. It's a kind of a defamiliarization strategy. But how am I going to create a situation where people in 30 years, you know, 28 years, 30 years, are going to start getting old and, and then accept the fact that their time is over by the time they're 30. How do I do that to, to create, make a situation where that seems normal to them, to the point where they accept it as their inevitable fate? 
this was a problem for me, and I tried all kinds of ideas about a group of kids coming across nuclear waste and whatever, but it didn't seem to quite work. And it was only the third time round, maybe 15 years after I first started that story, when I tried it again, that I had this idea that, well, I could use a kind of sci-fi premise, but might traditionally have been called a sci-fi premise. Let's make them clones, kids who are harvested specifically for organ donation, and that they're told right from the time they're, they're conscious that this is their role in life, this is their fate, and they live in such an enclosed psychological world that they internalize this fate and, and they don't question it. In fact, they go so far as to try and carry out their role well. That's what I ended up with. But as you see, it took me a while to get there. Oddly enough, it's the setting, time and place and genre that's missing. Once that falls in place, I can usually tell my story. Do you have a whole list of these almost stories then that you can search around and go, okay, you know, that's going to be Britain, that'll be Romania in 1840 or something like that? I do. I mean, it sounds completely stupid. If I showed you these notebooks, I don't have that many. They started in 1982. And I think I only have three little kind of hardcover little notebooks. Because each time when I try and write down an idea, I try and write it down in just three or four sentences. You know. Sometimes, yeah, they actually refer to a setting or something. But they don't go very far because of the way I work. Most of them are the internal kind of kernels of stories. And for me, these three or four sentences, when I look at them, they've got to be far more than the sum of their parts. There's got to be a real tension there's got to be real emotion coming off that. I've got to look at those things and, and more or less feel like weeping or getting really angry or something. Otherwise, I don't think I'll be able to do a good job when I try and build a whole novel on that foundation. You're listening to an interview with Kazuo Ishiguro, whose latest novel is The Buried Giant. I'm Richard Walensky on Bookwaves. Uh, this process that you're talking about, and then I do want to get into some of the specifics of The Buried Giant. Is this the same process that wound up uh, as, say, The White Countess, which became a film by James Ivory? I go about attempting to write movies in a completely different way, and I don't think I'm a very good screenwriter. I should say that right from the outset. I'm a novelist who's occasionally allowed to write a screenplay. Something like The White Countess or another movie I, I have a screenwriting credit for, The Saddest Music in the World, I mean, things like that. They're very collaborative ventures, you know. So something like The White Countess evolved out of an idea that James Ivory, the director, had. He came to me with a few things. He, I mean, he, he had a friend that he wanted, and he wanted to base a, a whole film around this friend of his. And I said, "Well, isn't that a bit rude to your friend? Wouldn't he mind?" And and Jim said, "Well, you know, he he wouldn't mind anyway, but we'll disguise it so much that he wouldn't know." And but there was a kind of a a location thing with that. I mean, the earlier drafts of the screenplay were set in New England. I was in my Shanghai phase at the time. I was writing books like When We Were Orphans, you know, set in Shanghai, and I. I said to him, why don't we set this whole story in Shanghai? It would be much more colorful. Uh, you guys, meaning Merchant Ivory, you know, you're so good at period and costume. Merchant Ivory goes to China. Surely, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, it's a, it kind of evolved in a right. different kind of way. But actually, now that you pointed out that same location change <laughs> thing happened there too. <laughs> well, okay, so Kazuo Ishiguro. So you've got this idea. You've got the location, you've got the old couple, 
and you've got the idea of possibly uh, a wandering one in this case actually two wandering knights one on either side of uh, the political spectrum and you've got the idea of loss of memory somehow that turns into this novel at that point do you begin just writing and seeing where it goes by the time i've got those things that you said yes yes I mean, the two warriors, as you put it, on either side of the political divide. In terms of the story, they're on either side of the question, do we get rid of this mist that's keeping people's memories from returning? And it turns out that the mission for one of them is to make sure that the memories don't return. There's also a monastery. They find themselves all in a monastery together of people who, again are on both sides of the divide of memory. Where does that come in? Or was that just, oh, they're walking up to a monastery. I got that. No, something slightly different is going on at the monastery. Some atrocity has taken place in the land a, a generation ago. And part of the reason this amnesia has been imposed on the people is so that everybody forgets what this atrocity was. The monks know that there was an atrocity a generation ago. And there's a debate between them because they're sincere religious guys, you know. Some of them think it's it's good enough to do penance, to pray for forgiveness, and to subject themselves to kind of painful rituals. That will be enough to win God's forgiveness. There are other monks who believe that will not do. We have to face up to what we did. We cannot actually continue to bury the memory of the terrible things, the atrocities that were committed across this land. So that's the division there. But the other thing that happens with the monks, and why the, I wanted the monks there, is that there is a debate between the Christian Britons and the pagan Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxon warrior basically puts this challenge to them. He says, look, why have you invented this God who is infinitely merciful? Isn't that terribly convenient for you? You know, when you committed all these atrocities, you know, the pagan gods, they have rules, and you break their rules, you'll be punished. That's our ethical system. What kind of ethical system is this Christian idea that you've introduced to, to the land, where you can do anything you want that's convenient to you? You massacre people, but your God is eventually going to forgive you so long as you say you're sorry in the right kind of way. I guess that reflects a question that I find quite interesting. The whole idea of a, of a God that will always forgive is infinitely merciful, so long as you repent and you atone. is a very dangerous one, perhaps, and perhaps accounts for why so many of the Christian nations throughout history felt able to rampage throughout the world-building empires. In the end, they'll get that absolution, and therefore all of the evil th that they did just vanishes. Yeah, and you could say in a, another way, you know, the, the scandals in the Catholic Church recently reflect that as well. I mean, is there something odd about this idea of you'll always be forgiven, you know, never, never mind what you do? And so from a pagan point of view, a non-Christian point of view, as the Anglo-Saxons are at this point, I mean, you know, they're outraged. You've hidden the terrible things you did. Now you're persuading yourself somehow that by undergoing certain kind of little kind of rituals to kind of self-harm or prayer, that that's going to be enough to let you off the hook. Uh, I guess his message is, well, it's not, you know. 
I'm part of a group of people who's going to bring those memories back to life and, and all hell is going to break loose. Delayed vengeance, but it's going to come. That's his position. Kazuo Ishiguro, toward the end, and we discover exactly what the buried giant is, and that is a metaphor. You know, I kept thinking of a place like Yugoslavia. When Tito was there, that was the mist. And then Tito's gone, the mist vanishes, and suddenly it's all out war. Yeah, exactly. The disintegration of Yugoslavia and what happened in Bosnia and Kosovo, and also in Rwanda, were big triggers for my thinking along the story along these lines. It's interesting you compare Tito to the mist. I think you can make a distinction between a peace that exists in a land where you know, different factions are coexisting, perhaps even coexisting relatively happily, using each other for babysitters and so on, as they were in Bosnia just before the terrible things broke out. But you can make a distinction between those eras of peace that have been imposed with force, without consensus and without negotiation. People have been just forced to just forget the past and just you know, get on with each other. And those eras of peace that have actually been arrived at through difficult consensus building and negotiation. A more positive example from that same era in the 90s is South Africa after apartheid. It's miraculous the country didn't disintegrate into chaos and civil war. And with all the anger and, and the need for vengeance over what had been done during the apartheid years. But there was a very careful and deliberate balancing of the need for for punishment and you know, retribution for those atrocities, but, but also that recognition that you had to just maybe just bury some memories so that the society could just cohere. There you have an example, I think, let's hope, where a, a peace is a genuine one where it has been arrived at through some kind of consensus. And the other example is Europe in the second half of the 20th century. I mean, look at the mess Europe was in the first half of the 20th century, vastly worse than anything in the Middle East now. And look at the peace that holds, at least in Western Europe now. I mean, that is a genuine peace. There's no dictatorship that's enforcing that peace. What they've done is they've made sure that the memory remains strong. There's no forgetting there. I mean, they've dealt with the memory. Everybody knows what happened in World War II. It's not a question of forgetting, but a question of remembering. I'm not sure if I entirely agree with you there. It's a very complicated question, you know, whether you apply it to Europe or other parts of the world. Many of the countries that had been occupied by the Nazis in the Second World War, who had enthusiastically collaborated, France being a prime example, where in every small village, somebody had betrayed somebody to the Gestapo. They had sent their own Jewish people to concentration camps. That has been forgotten. And you could argue that there were some good reasons, I put good in inverted commas, for, say, General de Gaulle's decision at the end of the Second World War to say, as a nation, we will not be able to cohere, we will disintegrate, we'll become communists, you know, there'll be revolutions, unless we can all tell ourselves this other narrative, which is that we were all brave resistance fighters throughout the Second World War. Let's all believe that. Many, many things, what really happened in the Second World War, is buried. And French culture since the war reflects that. You will not find the equivalent of uh, Les Miserables or any, any kind of realist fiction, the kind of thing that was going on in France before about what happened in the collaboration 
as a culture, you know, France doesn't want to look at it. You know, I'm not being sanctimonious or whatever about this. I, I think there are times when there is an argument to say, for the sake of not restarting cycles of violence and vengeance, for the sake of staying together and moving on to something better, for now at least, let's just bury these memories. You know, I think um, Europe is full of buried memories. Part of the success story of Europe, I think, at least relied on burying a lot of memories, at least temporarily. Kazuo Ishiguro, what do you think the role of fiction is in terms of looking at these kinds of issues? What do you see your role as as a writer in terms of looking at these issues? If by issues you actually mean, you know, these conflict situations yeah. and so on, I mean, I don't think I'm personally well placed to come up with any practical solutions. And even if I were, even if I was somebody who was skilled at going out there, researching, you know, interviewing people on the ground, politicians, ordinary people, I came back with some very strongly held opinions about what should happen next in certain countries. I'm not sure then I would actually want to express myself in fiction. I think then I would want to argue my points. I would use words still, perhaps, but I would want to use properly documented and properly backed up argument. And then people could refute that or not. If I'm writing fiction, I'm really taking a step back. I'm saying that here are some patterns that occur over and over in human experience throughout history. They occur at the personal level as well as that kind of geopolitical level. And my novels aren't there to provide any solutions or practical solutions to conflict situations. They're there to say, isn't this what it feels like to struggle with these dilemmas? If you're a human being, do you recognize these feelings? In the case of The Buried Giant, I guess I am asking, do you share these emotions? Do you understand the fear of wondering that you know, if certain memories come back, maybe that will threaten the love that you feel for a long-term spouse or, or parent. But do you also understand that we have to bring these memories back to the surface? We just cannot live with this kind of mystery of not knowing what the hell happened before. Everything we feel for each other, or the bonds in a society, or, or the bonds in a marriage, are false if they're based on something we don't know about. Ultimately, I have a fairly modest ambition as a novelist, although in my secret way, I feel it isn't that modest. I feel it's quite ambitious, but you know, it's to be able to share emotions. I think novels, for me, have a very important role. Novels, music, all art forms. I think it's very important that people from all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of ethnic groups and nations are able to share their emotions about the big things in, about being alive. When I talk to uh, artistic directors in the San Francisco area, uh, what I get back is interesting when I, they, they sometimes say that the success or failure of any production is not whether someone appreciated it, but whether there's a good conversation that they had about the production and the themes in the production on the way home. I don't think I would necessarily want to say the same thing about my books. I would be disappointed if somebody said about my novels, I read his book and I'm measuring the success of it by how interesting a discussion I had. That's not why I'm writing books. I think writing novels, certainly, it's a piece of communication, a very intimate piece of communication, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, writer to reader. 
in the end, although we like to have book events and book festivals and so on, it's all based around a very private moment. Somebody sitting in a, in a darkened room, maybe in the you know, last few minutes before they go to sleep, you know, they're reading this book. It's a, it's a very intimate, private thing. And it's all about what happens in that reader's head, in that reader's emotions. That's what I'm concerned about. If they want to talk about it with their friends, fine, you know, by all means, let's hope that enhances the experience. But for me, it's all about what you feel. Kazuo Ishiguro, changing the subject slightly, your last book, Nocturnes, had musical themes and you've written songs and I guess you play the guitar, right? What kind of relationship to music do you think uh, The Buried Giant has? Does it have any? What were you listening to when you were working on it? I don't think The Buried Giant has any direct uh, relationship to music. Um, I don't listen to any music when I'm literally when I'm writing, as I'm writing. But I do think throughout my life, being able to play music in a limited kind of way, my past as a songwriter, and these days I still work as a lyricist for my brilliant jazz singer friend, Stacey Kent, that side of me... I like to keep that fresh and alive and supple because I think it genuinely helps me as a writer. I don't do it just for that reason. You know, I, I love music. Let me explain why I think it's important. I think there's a temptation if you're a novelist because you use words as your means of communication, which is also what polemicists use and which is what essayists use and so on. There's sometimes a tendency to think that all the artistic decisions you make when you construct a novel are ones that should be backed up logically. That if you ask me something about The Buried Giant or Never Let Me Go right now and say, and ask me, well, why did that happen? Why did you do it that way? I should be able to come back to you with a very kind of reasoned, convincing answer. And sometimes, yeah, I, I get good at coming out with these answers, you know. But the truth is, a lot of the time, more and more, I think, I am making my decisions intuitively in the way that I think painters and musicians do in the more abstract arts. If you ask the jazz musician laying down a recording, you know, why do you prefer your solo on your first take rather than the second? It's going to be odd if they came back with a reasoned argument for one rather than the other. They're going to say the first one sounds better. It's what I wanted to express. It's closer right. to the emotion yeah. I wanted. You don't really want to hear more than that. I think it's important that I remain able to make many, many decisions with some confidence and some swiftness as a novelist on the same basis. I'm doing that because it sounds better to me. It looks better to me. I cannot really give a proper inglet or you know, creative writing workshop kind of answer to why I'm doing it. Why does that character have three children rather than no children. Why does that scene take place on a misty dawn day you know, rather than in a darkly lit bar? It just feels right to me. That's, that's what I want. And I think I've got to keep that ability and confidence to say, you know, that's it. That's the picture I want. That's the image I want. That's the mood I want. Without stopping and questioning and thinking, well, I have to come out with some kind of big argument about it. And, I, and so for that reason, I try to stay close to artists who work in music because I can understand some of that. I don't really understand painting and how decisions are made in abstract art, but in music, I feel like, you know, when I'm listening to, to a piece of music, particularly when I'm listening to jazz, I feel I can understand, I can follow that artist going through that passage. You know, why does he play that chord? Why does he play that line? 
I like to keep alive that side of me because I rely on it more and more as a, as a writer of novels. That's sort of the difference between what they say is inventing or discovery, because discovery would be simply having the your intuition arise and say, this is what's happening. And it seems to be also kind of an insight into the idea of when a author says, which I've heard many times, this character did this because, you know, I I watched the character do this. To be honest, I've never quite bought that. All right, people are allowed to say that, but it, it seems to me very sentimental. Yeah. I mean, even though I've just told you that I rely more and more right. on my intuition, I'm happy to rely more and more on my intuition and, and just say to hell with trying to justify it. You know, I just want... On the other hand, I never think my characters are doing things that I haven't given him or her permission to do. You know, I, I do think that is sentimental and kind of ridiculous in a way. Maybe you know, some people work in a completely different way. I'm trying to express something in my fiction, and you know, my characters are going to do what I want them to do to express that. <laughs> and, and I'll say one other thing about my characters. I stopped worrying about characters a long time ago. About 20 years ago, I had a kind of eureka moment. And I'd said to myself, I'm going to stop worrying about making my characters three-dimensional or colorful or, you know. I'm going to ask the same kind of questions I previously asked about characters, about relationships. Is that an interesting relationship or is that some kind of standard issue, master-pupil relationship or father-son relationship you've just heard of over and over again in every kind of story? Is that a genuinely interesting relationship? Does it turn and grow and develop? Does it surprise you? Does it have a beginning, middle, and an end during the course of the story? Or does it just not get beyond first base? You know, I actually think in terms of the, you know, the three-dimensional relationship, a relationship that surprises convincingly, as Ian Forster said, about characters. If I focus on relationships, the characters take care of themselves. You know, they're the things on either end of the relationship. But, you know, the idea that you know, one of these characters can just rebel and take my whole thing somewhere else, I mean, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't allow that. They'll get <laughs> fired immediately. <laughs> Is the character Whiston named after Arden? No, no. Well, I didn't even the, know that. WH. -H <laughs> you didn't know that. No, no, I didn't know that. No, all the naming. I tell you about the naming of characters. You know, in in all my books, and and certainly in this one, I've never attempted to have symbolic names. I find this an irritating practice. I know, you know, some of my most favorite writers do it to some extent. You know, many great writers have done it throughout the ages. I find it irritating. Usually, the fiction doesn't exist at that kind of um, symbolic level in any other respect apart from the words. So if somebody tells me Isabel Archer in Henry James, that she's an archer because uh, a portrait of a lady. Right, so yeah. It's called Isabel Archer because she is looking for a husband and she's an archery range kind of right. aiming for different husbands. That kind of spoils it for me because it's just taken it out of the suspension of disbelief that I'm immersed in in that world. I mean, it's, it's shattered by the idea that she's got a name that's kind of symbolic. You know? So I prefer to think that she's not called Archer for that reason. So I never do it myself. All I do is I usually have a list. And as soon as I need a character's name, I pick a name off the list. And, and the very giant... I downloaded a couple of lists from scholarly places, you know, one full of old Anglo-Saxon names, one full of old Britons' names. And uh, uh, whenever I needed, you know, a name, I just took it off the menu. 
And if it's got some kind of, kind of literary or historical reverberation, well, that's pure coincidence. Yeah. There's no Dante in Beatrice. <laughs> no, no, no. Beatrice. I just try to take the names from these lists that didn't sound too weird, you know, and I sometimes modified their spellings to make them more kind of friendly to her. There was an instance like this. I wrote a novel 20 years ago, The Unconsoled, and I needed a lot of German names. You know, it's a long book, and I needed a lot of German names, you know, street names, you know, incidental characters' names, main characters' names. And I wasn't very good at German names, so I had a book that told me all about soccer teams, you know, the World Cup. And I just went through German football teams' names, you know, right the way through that book. That, that was the main source of getting German names. And when I ran out of those, I, I got a film dictionary down, and I started to look at the cast and crew of German movies and, and started to use that. And uh, I was quite interested recently to find a very scholarly essay that had been, that had been published in the book by an academic in Britain. He had discovered this. And he thought that this was some deep meaning, a deep layer of meaning in that book, that there was a pattern that you know, everybody in the book was either a German footballer or a cast and crew member of a German <laughs> movie. Uh, and, it was, <laughs> and it was a very erudite essay. He, he'd done a lot of research to find well, all these. He nailed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, and so he was arguing that, that you know, he discovered this kind of hidden layer of meaning in the book. And I felt bad about that because... As I say, that's how I go about my names, usually. Kazuo Shiguro, now that Barry Giant is coming up, you're working on either a screenplay, you have any work in that direction? Have you started thinking about what your next book will be? Do you have those general themes, that four-sentence? Or have you put that aside already? Well, I have a lot of these uh, three or four-sentences ideas that attract me. But I was working on the Berry Giant, you know, more or less right up until the galleys were put out, and uh, you know, I was doing little things to it right till the end. And then, then the, this is the other dimension to an author's life these days: the publicity things started after that. For the past twelve months, I haven't done any kind of writing of any sort. I finished kind of correcting proofs, and then I've been thinking about how to do the publication. But I don't really mind these little pauses. Um, because it gives me a little chance to, to take stock and going out into the world as I do, you know, traveling for weeks on end, going around the world, it gives me some chance to reconnect and see what's going on out there. And I, I try not to make these promotion tours just things where I just spout out things. I, I do try and sponge up what's going on. A lot of these kind of discussions I've been having about, is this book fantasy? You know, do, do you mind people calling it fantasy? Is there prejudice against fantasy and sci-fi? You know, Next time I sit down quietly in my room and try and put together a novel, I think a lot of these discussions, the accumulation of these questions that people like you have asked me, all these things I think will go to some extent into what happens in, in the book I'm writing. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>